Welcome to the Candida Chronicles with our host, Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. In this podcast, Michael will answer your questions and reveal the shocking truth that the cause of most chronic ailments is not what you've been told. The source is Candida, a yeast overgrowth which, when it becomes systemic, can cause all sorts of seemingly unrelated ailments such as chronic fatigue syndrome and even weight gain. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. And now, without further ado, Michael Biamonte. And hello, everyone. This is Michael Biamonte, clinical nutritionist, with another episode of the Candida Chronicles. The first thing I'd like to do is I would like to put my sympathy out there. My prayers and my best wishes for the people who are unfortunately in Munich, we just found out that there has been a most likely a act of terrorism in Munich and there is a mass shooting where at least six people have been killed. So we'd like to put our prayers and thoughts with those people and hope that those who were injured make a quick and steady recovery. We also like to announce on a happier side the Candida Chronicles first edition first volume, was released yesterday, and the Candida Chronicles book is now available on Amazon.com. It uh, eventually will be available in many other places as well, but at this point it is first being introduced on Amazon. Uh, This is a long-awaited book for many people. Many people for years have been telling me that I needed to have a book on Candida based on my method. And sure enough, in this book, you will find all the basis of the Biamonte method of dealing with candida in the book right there for you to read and follow along. It's an excellent manual for anybody who's had chronic candida, chronic yeast infections. It can be used to self-treat, although we don't necessarily believe that's the optimal way to do things. But one who is going to self-treat is far better self-treating with this book in their hands than they would be by just randomly getting information off the internet. So that is available on Amazon.com. If you go on Amazon, just do a search for Candida Chronicles and the book will come right up and it'll be right there for you to order. Today's topic is going to be autism. We're going to be discussing the anatomy of autism. And interestingly enough, the second book in the series of the Candida Chronicles is going to be about that exactly. It's going to be about autism and candida and how they're related to each other. Now, the first thing that one needs to understand regarding autism is the genetics that are involved in autism. In autism, we will find a certain group of genetics that the person will have that they've inherited The combination of genetic errors that they inherit from their mother and the father give them a particular profile 
which lead to them being poor detoxifiers. This is the one universal thing that you will find in all autistic children, and without this prerequisite, autism cannot develop in the way that we know of it. When the person becomes a poor detoxifier, he is then subject to accumulating toxins from our modern environment that did not exist a hundred years ago, or certainly 200 years ago. And if we're going to argue it further, we'll say pre-industrial revolution. Prior to the industrial revolution, we had uh, more or less a certain level of toxicity on this planet, which remained at a steady pace. It's changed definitely after the Industrial Revolution. And there you go. So here we have the problem that you have a person who was a poor detoxifier who was now in a challenging environment where perhaps 100 to 200 years ago the environment was not that challenging. What we then end up with is a person who accumulates toxins who cannot detoxify. These toxins interfere with the neurological systems, the immune system, the gut flora, on and on and on. When the person is burdened by these toxins, and particularly the type of toxin which appears to selectively uh, hit the autistic child, which I am definitely referring to copper and mercury, the two, two uh, potentially toxic elements. The copper and mercury not only affect you neurologically pretty dramatically, but they affect your immune system. A person who has copper and mercury toxicity is far more susceptible to developing candida overgrowth. Now, if we think about it, what happens with children? Children are vaccinated so they're inherently getting mercury. They're inherently getting copper from the vaccinations. And children, as being children, tend to pick up various infections because they are, unfortunately, in, in a sense, like a walking germ pool. They interact with other children who have various germs in, in school. Because their immune systems are not yet developed, they typically get infections, sinus infections, colds, sore throats, whatnot. Of course, the answer to this is the doctor puts them on antibiotics. You will note, and I think most people will agree with this, that the rate of children being put on antibiotics is much higher than the common adult. Most adults do not take antibiotics with the frequency that children do as children are in their formative stages. So the frequency of antibiotics that the child will get will cause an imbalance in the flora and allow candida to grow. Just from the viewpoint of candida growing at this, at, at this juncture, you have various aldehydes and mycotoxins being released into the child's body that the child is not prepared or adapted to receive. These mycotoxins and aldehydes cause problems with the nervous system, cause problems neurologically with neurotransmitters, with various hormones. Uh, they act as irritants to the child's nervous system, essentially. And you have a child now who 
is for all intensive purposes neurologically challenged due to these toxins being released by these microbes. As time goes on and these microbes throw out more toxins and as the mercury and copper increase due to repeated vaccinations, you now have a person who's very neurologically challenged. At this point, they could develop leaky gut syndrome due to the candida they have. And uh, if they're exposed to some other type of toxins or have any any other type of shock occur to their body, leaky gut is not that far off. Once they develop leaky gut, the onslaught of neurological toxins coming from candida and toxins coming from anything that they literally put in their mouths which the normal intestinal barrier would have prevented, now will absorb into the person's system, and the person now has a much greater burden. So at this point, you now wonder, or, or I should say we do not have to wonder, why the child has behavioral problems and learning disabilities. The child is toxic with mercury, and, or, and uh, copper. The child has very bad intestinal dysbiosis. They have leaky gut syndrome, which is known to produce a whole ha- handful of autoimmune phenomena. And at the bottom of it all, we have the genetic errors that cause them to be a poor detoxifier, which allow all those toxins from the vaccinations, meaning the toxic metals foremost, to remain in their system. But remember, because they are poor detoxifiers, they have other toxicity that they encounter, which also will accumulate in their systems. It's not just the metals from the vaccinations. There is a doctor out there, a medical doctor, whose name is Rashid Buttar. I hope I pronounced his name right. Dr. Buttar spoke at one of my... Um, nutritionist conventions or symposium several years ago which happened to be on autism and he told his entire story which is rather fascinating which I would recap for you here today. Dr. Buttar's young son had been diagnosed with autism and Dr. Buttar of course took him to the son to various specialists and tried to find out as much as he could about autism And he was mainly hitting along the mainstream thinking and the mainstream line of autism in that there is really no nutritional or biochemical connection. This is all some mysterious learning problem and behavioral problem that the children have where they need various counseling and and whatnot, special classes and all this. Well, eventually, in the computer age, Dr. Buttar came across the references in the data on mercury toxicity being related to autism. Uh, Dr. Buttar, being a very smart man, immediately noticed or was able to see the truth in this, and he then began to test his son for mercury. He tested using hair tests and using the standard urine toxic metal tests, and he did not find that the child was positive for mercury. But because Dr. Buttar could duplicate and think with the technical data that was being presented to him, he realized that if the child is a bad detoxifier, the mercury and copper 
or whatever the toxins are, are not necessarily and logically would not be presented straightforward on the test. So if you have a child who's a bad detoxifier and you test him for toxins, you don't expect to find the toxins being released because the child is a bad detoxifier in the first place. If the child could easily give up the toxins or excrete them, they would show in the test and he wouldn't be a bad detoxifier in the first place and probably would have rid himself of these toxins in the normal manner that most people would. So Dr. Bittar started to chelate his son using DMPS, which is a common chelator for mercury and copper. To make a long story short, Dr. Buttar chelated this boy for, I believe it was about three years, testing him every, every uh, I would say, an, an interval of at least every six months for, for the metals. And for that three-year period, he did not find any metals coming out in this child and showing up on the test. It wasn't until they were entering, I believe, the third year that he started to see metals coming up on the test. So it took this child three years or so of being chelated before his body was able to start to release the stored mercury and copper that he had. Now I believe, uh, I may be off a little bit on my times here, but I believe that he did continue to chelate the child for the next few years, and it took several years, uh, at least three, from the time the toxic metals started to show on the test for the, the child to then eliminate all of the metals to the point where there was an acceptable stretch of six months or more where the child's testing showed no more toxic metals. So if you think about this, um, if my timelines of recollection here are, are even close, it took several years of chelating the boy before any evidence of metals showed up on the test. Then once the evidence of the metals showed on the test, <clears throat> it took several more years before the metals were depleted from the child's body and the tests then showed clear and no more metals coming out. So this is, we're looking at at least a six or seven year ad adventure here for Dr. Buttar and his son to remove these metals. Now at the time that the metals were removed, the, the doctor and other people uh, in the environment that were working with the child started to see an improvement in the child. The child's speech improved, the child's ability to learn improved, et cetera, et cetera. Now what you don't expect to find in a case like this is when you've chelated the child and you have these metals eliminated and everything seems fine, you don't expect one day to come home and, and find your child wearing a sophisticated smoking jacket, smoking a pipe on the recliner in the living room, reading the Wall Street Journal. This would be a very unreasonable expectation. What you would expect is that when you achieve this balance in the child, you would then expect him and his ability to learn his behavior to become more compliant and to optimize. So we're not expecting the child to suddenly regain years of, of lost 
schooling or education or sophistication. We're expecting now at this point when the child has his body in a better balance that now he is going to be able to begin, is the key word, he's going to be able to begin to be educated and retain the education and his behavior can then begin to improve so that he is a happy, nice person to be around. So here we have the anatomy of autism. Autism begins with the genetic errors, which one can be tested for. The website 23andMe is most likely the uh, easiest way that one can avail himself of genetic testing. 23andMe can test you for all the various genetic errors, and you can find if you have the ones that are common in autistic children, or if your child does. To some degree, we could use this biochemical testing lineup as a way to differentiate whether a child truly has autism based on the true biochemical physiological model as opposed to the child having a behavioral problem for some other spiritual or mental reason which is not truly autism and therefore being unable to learn or behave properly. I would hope that there is going to be a standard someday very soon. I believe that we can, we can say there already is one in the alternative medical community where we look at a child who is being diagnosed as autism and we test him. We test his genetics. We look to see if he has these genetic errors. We test him for the toxic metals. We look to see if he has these toxic metals. We test him for candida, for leaky gut syndrome. We look to see if he has those conditions. And if the child has these genetic errors, if they have this toxicity, if they have dysbiosis, candida, leaky gut, we could say this is a classic model of an autistic child. This child is autistic per the, let's say, naturopathic model or the functional medicine model. And we could say that this child has autism and it is a physical problem. And therefore, it must be treated physically before we could expect any type of educational therapy, talk therapy, for lack of a better term, psychological help to avail itself. Now, if we look at this child and we do not find these medical problems there, then I would say this is not a child who has autism per the functional naturopathic medicine model. This child has other issues which are not physical and which cannot be addressed as physical because they're simply not there. So that would not be a child who has autism per this new model that I'm presenting here. Very often the children with autism who are under this umbrella of this as I call it, a functional medicine or naturopathic model, they also will be very chemically sensitive. Going back many years ago, when this was first being looked into by alternative medical doctors, we had Dr. Feingold. And Dr. Feingold had done quite a lot of research to show that children with behavioral problems 
could be worsened by exposing them to various food additives, food coloring, preservatives, artificial flavors, things of this nature, that these substances aggravated their condition. Now, when we look back at it with the knowledge we have today, it makes perfect sense because, of course, these food additives and food, uh, let's say, substances are toxins. We could easily argue that a food coloring, a food additive, an artificial flavor, a preservative, all has a potential toxicity. We've heard for years how many of these substances had the ability to cause or were suspected to cause various cancers. Well, my God, if they can cause cancers, they're certainly not uh, a safe thing. They're certainly a toxin. And these toxins were observed by Dr. Feingold as worsening the child's condition. Now understanding that the autistic child has detoxification problems or errors, this makes perfect sense. Food allergies are another major concern. Many parents noted over the years that the child's behavior, ability to learn and whatnot, would change dramatically depending on food that they ate that they were allergic to or not. Something as simple as swimming in a pool where the pool is being, uh, let's say, preserved or maintained with copper sulfate solutions can dramatically throw off a child's behavior. In my own practice, we've had several children over the years who were copper toxic, whose behavior and general outlook improved as we reduced their copper to have them worsen or relapse apparently for no reason over the summertime when they went to camps and were then in pools that had copper added to it as a germicide. And during that time of the summer, if the child is in the pool at least a few, like an hour or so per day, he's going to absorb a significant amount of copper again. So it's an interesting, interesting study to see that the children exposed to copper who have behavioral problems, have their behavior improve with the reduction of the copper, will only relapse again when they're re-exposed to the copper and their testing shows that they've had a relapse and their copper is now elevated again. So these are the, the various pitfalls that you need to look at with autistic children, similar to gluten. Gluten um, is a, a quite a problem because when, first off, being on a gluten-free diet is very hard because you don't know if gluten is hidden, hidden in the food you're eating. And then secondly, it only takes a small amount of gluten in one meal to cause your immune system to start being reactive again. Someone could have avoided gluten for six months, have their immune system and their autoimmune symptoms calm down to be exposed to a small amount of gluten in one meal and have the whole thing flare up again. Probably one of the bigger challenges that exist with gluten-free diets is to keep the person off the gluten long enough 
to get their immune system to destimulate from it so that when they're exposed to it again, the body has a better handling for it. In one sense, the more you expose someone to a potential allergen, the more the allergen is going to react and the more reactive they become to the allergen. But in another sense, if you expose them to tiny amounts of the allergen and you do it over a period of time, you're giving the body a chance to adapt to this allergen and to then, therefore, no longer being allergic to it. This is the concept of, of vaccinations for food allergies. The concept of getting allergy shots is that you're being given a tiny amount of the offending substance with the hopes that your body will become familiar with it and familiar enough with it where it won't react. This is the basis of, of homeopathy. Allergy shots and vaccinations are most likely the modern Western version of, not of the original homeopathy that came from Germany and, and, and whatnot in Europe. The concept is that like cures like. So if someone had a cold, let's say, and the cold was producing symptoms of sneezing and runny nose, if you gave them a substance which also produced a cold and a runny nose, but you gave it to them in a very tiny amount, it would relieve the symptoms of the cold that they had. This is the basic concept of homeopathy. And we're applying the same type of logic to allergy shots and vaccinations in order to have the person be able to tolerate exposure to certain um, infections, we give them a, a very tiny amount of that infection so their body can develop an, an immunity or an antibody response against it, but not so much that's going to make them literally sick. And then when they're exposed to the infection, the body knows how to defend itself. And again, along these same lines, it's similar with food allergy shots or allergy shots. Whether it's an airborne allergen or a food that you're using, um, airborne allergens are probably more common. You give the person an injection that has a tiny amount of the mold that they may be reacting to, or the tree material, the grass, the dander, the dust, whatever it is that they're reacting to, you give them an injection with a tiny amount of it, and you allow the body's own immune system to adapt to being exposed to this so that it doesn't react so horrifically when it's exposed to it in full force. This is the concept behind treating allergies or using vaccinations. And this is still applicable today. It doesn't always work, unfortunately. It works sometimes. There are arguably better systems nowadays than these shots. But the shots still may have value in certain cases. The better approach nowadays is using phytonutrients and various naturopathic supplements to balance the immune reaction. In the autistic child, there is essentially a war going on. The war that's going on is between his overactive immune system and his endocrine system comprised of his hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal, and thyroid or in Chinese medicine, as sometimes they call it, the triple heater. 
The immune system consists of the thymus gland, the spleen, and the lymph tissue, which is in the parasympathetic network. The parasympathetic network is the side of your nervous system which activates those functions and those glands or organs. The sympathetic side of your nervous system is more known as the fight or flight response, and it's also the side or the part of the nervous system that would stimulate the pituitary, adrenal, and thyroid. So the nervous system, if we map it out here, has two parts. The nervous system has the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. Parasympathetic meaning to be outside of the sympathetic. So the sympathetic nervous system exists and outside of the sympathetic is the parasympathetic, which innervates different parts of the body, different systems. The sympathetic is innervating the adrenal thyroid pituitary, while the parasympathetic is innervating the thymus, the spleen, the lymph system. It's the thymus, the spleen, the lymph system, which becomes overactive in the autoimmune case. So when you're trying to balance out someone who has these bad allergies, who has all this autoimmune activity going on, what you want to do is you want to do things that are going to gradually reduce the activity of the parasympathetic nervous system or reduce the activity of the thymus, the spleen, and the lymph system while, on the other hand, enhancing and supporting the sympathetic nervous system where we have the adrenal, thyroid, and pituitary. We want to bring those functions up because they do work like a seesaw. One end goes up, the other end goes down. So in the autistic child, the end that's up is the parasympathetic and the immune glands and that whole autoimmune response. So if we bring the adrenal and the thyroid up by supporting that a bit, then the autoimmune action starts to calm down because the thymus overactivity starts to reduce. This is the modern way of addressing allergies and autoimmune conditions. And these are what you will find in the autistic child as part of the whole complex that he's dealing with. So in treating the autistic child, the very first thing you, of course, always want to treat is the gut. You first want to address his dysbiosis that he has. Following the methods in the Candida Chronicles book, Volume 1, which now is at your availability through Amazon.com, is the first step of addressing the autistic child's case. We first address his candida or his dysbiosis. Then we can start addressing his toxic metals. When we have his toxic metals in balance, we could then start to address the imbalances that he has between his sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system or these various glands and orders, uh, organs in the body. At that point, when you're successful there and you have this child in a much better balance, as I said earlier, he is then going to be more responsive to special education and special teaching and behavioral uh, modification and whatnot and whatnot. Because now you have literally cleared the birds off his antennas and the static from his radio so that he can comply. He, can, he has the ability to learn because he doesn't have these 
physical barriers there anymore. As I said earlier, the second volume of the Candida Chronicles will be about autism and Candida. It uh, promises to be a very interesting book. We have several celebrity doctors and a, a few celebrity lay people who are in the autism field that are very well known who will be participating in the book and giving their opinions about treatment and their observations of the various children that they've seen over the years with this condition so that we can all have a better understanding of it. But remember, it all begins with the genes. This has been Michael Biamonte, clinical nutritionist, with an episode of the Candida Chronicles. Thank you for joining us today. We will be back on the air next Friday at 4 p.m. And in the meanwhile, please check out the Amazon.com and check out the Candida Chronicles first volume, which is now released. And we will speak to you once again next Friday at 4. We wish you well. That's a wrap for this episode of the Candida Chronicles featuring Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. Michael holds a doctorate of nutropathy and is a New York State Certified Clinical Nutritionist. He is a professional member of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists and of the American College of Nutrition, and he's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. Welcome to the Candida